All right, my little barnacle buddies. I'm here what's up, this. Pat? What's up, famo, famal lamb? I'm here this week with my comrade from the motherland, Mr. David Forsyth. Forskin. Forskin in the house. How, how was your show last night in Dallas? It was good. It was it was long. Four hours playing music is is real work. Did y'all get any breaks in there? What's that? Did y'all get any breaks? Yeah, we had two 20-minute breaks. Oh, okay. Yeah, four hours was, straight of playing would be Oh, I know. Too fucking I had talked much. to Anthony the night before. He played five hours in Amarillo, and I was like, I'll take four hours in Dallas over five in Amarillo. Oh, yeah. What was the name of the bar you played at again? It was called the Ginger Man, and it was just this little outside bar. Ginger Man seems like a weird name for a bar. But it was it was fun. They gave us free pita. Fuck free yeah. pita and free beer. Have you heard of Cheddar Man? Cheddar Man? Cheddar yes, Man. I'm... He's like the... Um, honestly, I'm going to prove how much I don't know about Cheddar Man right now. But I think he's... He's like a ne- Neanderthal, maybe? Oh, yeah. But they have yeah. like... They linked uh, black heritage to him. And like all these white Europeans had found out about it. Yeah, the, it, it was like a like a neanderthal skeleton or something like that yeah they like traced uh african dna to they traced i don't know they linked it to like everybody basically well i heard it, did they find the body in somewhere in europe and it disproved other it was like a dark-skinned european yeah right? i read okay. something about it but it was a while back i i only remembered the cheddar man and the the general gist of the idea but i think you might know a little bit more about it than i do it throws a wrench into everything. I've I've always thought that we all came from, like, the cradle of life or whatever it is. I was reading this book called Sapiens, and it's just page after page, just mind-blowing stuff. I don't know. I would suggest that. Sapiens by, um, I don't know, just look up a book called Sapiens. You'll probably find it. Oh, yeah. That sounds similar to that um, Upright Thinkers book that I was reading by. Yeah. Oh, Leonard Mladenov, or however his yeah. name is pronounced. But yeah, this week, um, since it's Black History Month, I felt like it would be appropriate if we sort of pay homage to African-American musicians who have either changed the course of music history or influenced us directly. And, uh, I mean, the, the list is huge. If you go and look at, like, if you just Google, for instance, uh, inspirational African-American musicians, the list is just ridiculously long i mean you i could go off and name tons of people like stevie wonder ray charles you know Jimi hendrix bb king louis armstrong duke ellington it's all like it's it's just immense the vast difference between my musical idols who are black versus my musical idols who are white and it's i don't know it's it sounds weird to put it that way it's weird how it works out yeah and I was watching this um, Miles Davis documentary about Kind of Blue. And he was basically talking about how, like, the interview asked him, the interviewer asked him if um, if he felt like sort of the oppression of blacks kind of fed into that music and their, their soulful sort of renditions of these, like, old spiritual gospel songs. And he basically said that no, like, he doesn't see the, that having a correlation. And that was extremely interesting to me. Who was saying this? Uh, this was the guy that was interviewing Miles Davis. Miles okay. Davis was the one who said that, you know, I don't make good music because my ancestors were slaves. 
And I thought that that was a really interesting way. Like he's he's going against this victim mentality that's so prevalent today. Yeah. It's, it's weird to think about. I, I, when I think about maybe not so much victim mentality as it is to isolation. There's uh, right. Uh, have you ever heard of the Harlem Renaissance? I haven't. It's this. It was like the they call it the Har- Harlem Renaissance now, and I guess you can only call something a renaissance in hindsight. But it was the it was New York in the twenties, all the jazz clubs, with all the people in New York basically building the United States music scape. What we have now was largely built off of that Harlem Renaissance, and they, when you see pictures and videos, I guess not videos, but when you hear depictions of the Harlem Renaissance, they're all like you know happy in this in the room they're in there. It seemed like that was isolated from the the mainstream, so it just created this crazy little... Oh, yeah. That that definitely feeds into this idea that I wanted to talk about. So I'm going to kind of go off on a little bit of a history tangent, because I, I found this out uh, just the other day, basically. Um, so all these Africans are forced into America, where they're converted to Christianity and uh, living on plantations and all of this stuff. And around the 1740s, people had kind of figured out that they use the African drum to communicate between these uh, groups of slaves, basically. And all the plantation owners basically decided that we need to shut that the fuck down because that's how you get an organized rebellion. Yeah. So they, Yeah, they banned the um, African drum, but that actually led to something very innovative in music and I'll, I'll explain it. Um, so like turn of the 19th century. Yeah. Um, all the instruments like common instruments, you have your brass woodwind concert percussion, you know, orchestral type instruments. And you have these people who don't really have formal training, but they get a hold of these instruments and they start to improvise with them. Mm. And, you know, like traditionally the classical percussion section was set up so that multiple people played all the different instruments, but, these slaves didn't have the resources of a full orchestra and they had to find workarounds for it. And so they basically came up with the idea that we have one person playing all the percussion instruments and they'd set up like a marching bass drum, concert snare, and like the big, the big clacky cymbals, like the monkey, you know? Yeah. They basically set that up as the modern drum set. So was the modern drum set, like what we have today is like a trap set. Was that a thing before this, like, like uh, organization of these like off uh, like wow sorry they have all these like a snare and a tom and cymbals was that organized into a trap set at that point or was the trap set something that humanity had before that time um i'm not sure i don't think the trap set was a thing before then i think this was like the first time anyone had ever thought of having like a single percussionist play multiple instruments at once. I didn't know that. And it was like out of necessity because they didn't have, you know, tons of people with musical instruments to play like a marching band or whatever. Yeah. But I just just thought it was really interesting because it's like, I I could draw parallels to modern society, but I don't want to get off on that tangent. But it's like you try to stifle them and like push them down so that they can't communicate. And all it does is it, makes it grow in a new way it's like a plant like if you bend a plant down it's going to grow up and or down and around 
yeah. but it's, the stalk's going to be thicker. I don't know. It's a weird analogy to make, but it was Gosh, just, and I'm, I'm not really doing it justice, but it, it's, it was super inspiring for me, you know, because obviously, like, I love to play drums when I can. Yeah. And I it, never knew where it came from. That plant analogy is a good analogy. If you push something in one way, it's going to inevitably grow into another another way and it's not it's gonna it's gonna seem different but it's different because of actions put upon it yeah and i'm gonna sound cheesy when i'm saying this but i, I think the reason why um blues music and r&b kind of has this like really human feel is because these people weren't classically trained you yeah know, you have like the the composers of like the 18th and 19th century who would all brought up in rich families and had you know, very expensive educations and there were classically trained pianists and all of this stuff. And then you get these slaves who don't, you know, I mean, they have an idea of music, obviously, because it's kind of ingrained in their culture, but not in the sense that the rest of, you know, modern society or at the time, modern society was viewing it. Yeah. It wasn't viewed as, as <clears throat> I don't feel like it was viewed as an instinct. It was like an intellectual pursuit rather than yeah, it was coming like, from the soul. Yeah. Like, it, it was from the heart. It was really genuine. Yeah. We but, really used to overthink it. Yeah, and I, I guess it still do. We still do. I overthink it every time I sit down with a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, but so that's where the drum set came from, apparently. Um, well, that's pretty interesting. One of the earliest blues recordings was recorded in the 1920s. Um, W.C. Handy is known as the father of the blues. Was the first Handy? Yeah, William. No, good name. Charles Handy? William Clayton? I'm not sure, honestly. But um, he was the first to actually notate it. It was called the Memphis Blues. And um, he's one of the few people that's actually attributed it for his contribution to music. But um, how was how how was he recording? Do you know? Um, I think. Uh, it was definitely phonograph technology. I think mm -hmm. Edison invented the phonograph around then, somewhere like 1917. I'm probably fucking wrong. I'm completely guessing. <laughs> but I know that that technology was um, invented around there. So I think what they were doing was basically, if you think of how a phonograph works, it was like that process but in reverse where the sound was going into the bugle-looking thing and being mm -hmm. etched into the... It's really yeah. interesting. If you look up... Um, on YouTube, like just early blues recordings, it's it's crazy to see. I mean, obviously it sounds bad, but when you think about what people <laughs> had back then, like it, it's crazy yeah. to hear. There's a this song called "Ass Shit." <laughs> <laughs> There's a song called like "Whistling Coon" or something. I don't know what, but it's. I think it was like the first blues song to ever be recorded, if I remember correctly. Wow. Um, when I was in Odessa last, uh, my dad was showing me this documentary. Um where they brought in all these modern like elton john was there and uh jack white was running the whole thing so take that for what it is yeah but um it was really good and they had this guy who's a sound engineer that uh rebuilt one of those machines that was like a reverse engineered phonograph mm -hmm. and he just had all these people come in and record um and it was just one take one take you had three minutes and you had one piece of vinyl that that you had for that take and i guess that's just how it used to be and if you messed up you you just you're screwed yeah. come back to the studio later on with more money that's but, a mentality i feel like uh modern musicians could learn a lot from at like the yeah. the 
proliferation of this recording technology makes it easy to where you know like what when you're recording with tape if you make an error that's an expensive fucking error mm-hmm. but you and i have recorded together you know that if we fuck up it takes me two seconds to hit control z and then control r to start another recording yeah and so, i know that your control z on your laptop is worn out because i <laughs> i take 100 takes for everything i do oh, not just you man it's it's me as well <laughs> but yeah it's crazy how Control Z is a free little keystroke that we do, and we don't even think about it. But it used to be a huge piece of vinyl the size of your laptop that they would have to throw away every time that that you messed up on it, or, or that you would tell them to throw away. I don't know. We're just we don't think about how talented you actually have to be to do this stuff. Oh yeah, like a lot. I don't remember what Beatles album it was. It Sergeant Pepper's where they had like the weird. Um, it was like the first instance of sampling where they were like splicing tape together and they have like the rooster sound effect. Oh yeah. I think it's Sergeant Peppers, somewhere on Sergeant Peppers. But that that was like a process that was an actual career you could have was like somebody who goes and cuts audio tape and splices it together and Yeah, I know. It's like the earliest form of sampling. It's cut and paste. Yeah. It's cut and paste in the real world. But um some more fucking music history for you. I found out the name of the earliest jazz musician. Well, he's a self-proclaimed earliest jazz musician. Okay. You know, I'm sure there was people doing it before him who didn't get recognition or weren't, you know, putting it out there for the world to hear. But his name was Jelly Roll Morton. Jelly Roll Morton. And he <laughs> went on to basically make Chicago the jazz capital with Louis Armstrong wow. in the 20s. How have I never heard of Jelly Roll? I don't know, man. I need to listen to his music, I'll be honest. I might play some at the end of this podcast. I, it might be in public domain. I don't I don't know what the rules are. I don't think that... Like 70 years or something? 70 years? Mm-hmm. I also didn't know that Louis Armstrong was almost 100 years ago. Wow. It's crazy to think about. He's still used pretty frequently in like film and TV. I know. And funerals. I, I can't say I imagine anything today being listen to in a hundred years from now no maybe carly ray jepson but that's, that's yeah that's maybe. <laughs> I, th- I think you're right <laughs> fucking Katy perry gonna have her bicentennial if you were to have your most influential black art <clears throat> black artist who is who is the one that is like your i don't know this is your interview but i'm asking you a question oh no this this is um, an open thing who is your uh like you like your jesus my Jesus. Um, yeah. My black Jesus. I would have to say... <laughs> I'm going to say Steve Jordan, and this is why. Um, okay. Because I I grew up... I didn't have... Uh, I mean, I had an appreciation for music, but I, I didn't have it in the way that I had after I met you and Anthony. Mm-hmm. It was like, you guys put me on to blues, and John Mayer, obviously, who Steve Jordan plays in his band. Yeah. And... I don't know. It's like I got started uh, sort of like going back and seeing what he had played on and watching interviews and stuff. And that just sort of opened the floodgates for me to fall into this. I don't know what you want to call it, like just music exploration. Like I've, I've found most of my influences. I can link it back to, you know, listening to Steve Jordan talk or listening to him play. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's 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 so connected in the industry that he, he can take you down any any pathway to any genre just the groove man the groove mm-hmm. is unprecedented yeah that yeah, and uh zigaboo zigaboo modalise from the meters 
that's another one, another good drummer that has influenced me a lot. He's he, Zigaboo. Zigaboo. I don't know what his actual name is. It, I I don't think it's Zigaboo, <laughs> but <laughs> um, they they came from the New Orleans style of jazz, and it was heavily influenced by like uh, Native American tribal music. There's yeah. a, there's a really good documentary on on him that goes into depth about that. But it was just something that is very unique. I mean, I don't feel like you hear people talking about um, sort of uh, what's the word? Aboriginal music, I guess. Is that yeah. is Aboriginal? Is that a blanket term, or is that strictly talking about? I have, I have no Australians. Idea. I don't know why I have a connotation <laughs> or association with fucking Australia and whatever. Anyway, <laughs> fucking derail but like this. native. <laughs> Like native music, I've I've heard that I've heard that jazz um, meshed with with Native American music at some point, and a lot of what we hear now is is kind of a branch off of that. I don't have any evidence for that, but I have heard that. Oh yeah, and the proliferation of jazz and blues was basically well, I wouldn't say it's brought about by prohibition, but uh-huh. it was sort of accelerated by it because you had these speakeasies, which were like the only place to go and get lit the fuck up. Yeah. And then you've got all these groovy ass motherfuckers playing this crazy ass music that you've never heard before. Yeah. I mean, you listen to jazz now and it's kind of watered down because we've grown up watching like Disney cartoons and things that have jazz music playing all throughout. Right. It, I don't, it kind of burns you out on the sound, I guess. I don't know. Back in Prohibition era, that's what they were creating NASCAR to. Those guys were driving fast, listening to blaring, blazing trumpets, <laughs> <laughs> getting across the desert with all the booze they could handle. Oh, yeah. It's fucking lit as shit up in there. Anyway, um, I wanted to talk about one guy that I read about. He was a Grand Ole Opry star named DeFord Bailey. Have you ever heard of that guy? DeFord Bailey? Yeah. I, uh-huh. I, yeah, I had never heard of him either. And that's that's kind of the problem and the reason I wanted to do this episode is to sort of highlight some of the lesser known people as well as talk about our influences, which I'll, I'll ask you what your black Jesus is shortly, but I, I wanted to uh, mention this really quickly. Um, he basically was like the first recording artist in Nashville. Wow. And he recorded, I don't know what the name of the album was. You think I would have jotted that <laughs> down. But anyway, basically he got, he was like the first person, the first African American to get fucked over and they only released half of his material and he got completely gypped on the royalties which kind of sets the tone for how the music industry starts to unfold, I guess. Right. And in the later in the 80s, like 1982, he ends up dying penniless and he's never inducted in the Country Music Hall of Fame even though he went on or like his performance at the Grand Ole Opry had inspired, you know, uh, Hank Williams, Jimmy Rogers and Merle Haggard and all these types. But he he doesn't get the credit for that, you know. I'd never heard of that guy's name once. Neither and I. But so yeah, shout out to old fucking Difford. 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 <laughs> That's really kind of a bummer though. So was he he was the did you say he was the first at the Grand Ole Opry? Yeah, he was the well, I could be misquoting. Like he could have been the first African American, but I wanna huh. say when I read that it said that he was the first to perform at the Grand Ole Opry. See, I don't know much about the whole Grand Ole Opry is in Nashville, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know much about all the Nashville lore. I kind of try to stay away from it. Yeah, I don't either. It's a it's a real uh fucky place. Yeah. It seems and it and it got it start doing that fucking over you know musicians that are just trying to 
Just trying to sing their songs, man. Yep, and it, it's still doing the same thing. Nashville still functions on that same business plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now it's even, I mean, it's they, they're pretty clear about it. Like you yeah. <laughs> send in your songs, you know, just write yeah. a song and send it in to us and uh, maybe, you'll, maybe you'll be the next big thing. Yeah, or maybe they, we'll just fucking steal it. Who knows? That is how they market it. And they have, I was listening to, uh, what's his name, Chris Stapleton talk. And he was. Who that's is that what guy? Um, forgive me, I don't know. The Tennessee whiskey guy, you know, the guy with a big beard. He looks like a Tennessee bear. Hmm. I'll have to look him up. Anyway, uh, well, he, he has he's had a few big hits recently, but he, um, that's what he did for years, like ten years, I think. And he just had uh, this backlog of of written songs that he was selling to people in Nashville, and. Then one day he was like, you know what? I can actually sing. I'm gonna start releasing my own songs f- for myself. But he he was one of those Nashville Nashville worms, we'll call them. <laughs> Nashville worms. <laughs> so that's that's basically the first example of. Well, not that, but it's it's one of the examples of people stealing. Another one that I found was um, Bill Haley and the Comets. Basically, they got their rise to fame by selling millions of records by sort of like whitening up these rhythm and blues songs that had been released already. I mean, um, there was a guy named Ike Turner King. Okay. And uh, he put out this album called uh, Rhythm Cut Rocket 88. And it was basically considered to be the first rock and roll record. But Bill Haley in the Comets comes out three months later and does a cover of it and a lot of people well I won't say they accredit him with creating rock and roll but he sort of stole the limelight I will say this is the the Bill Haley guy yeah just another instance of a whitey coming on along and taking something that isn't his see I'm confused I'm confused about the start of rock and roll uh, and I I've, I've been meaning to research more into it because I don't know how we define when it started or who started it or, or who even started like the 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 backstory of rock and roll. I guess like the if you put music in the context of a story, what is the backstory? I guess blues is the backstory of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but. the backstory of blues is those plantation spiritual songs that I was talking about. Right. So I mean it it all it's really just like a, a snowball effect where everybody sort of innovates on the ideas of their uh predecessors basically yeah and i mean you can you can link hip-hop to jazz you can link disco to jazz and blues um yeah i mean we get in later into the 70s and stuff that's where all that stuff starts to branch out in crazy directions yeah i like the line that you can draw from hip-hop to jazz that is such a like it, it goes like hip-hop disco to a weird branch of like rock where it's like rock and R&B back to blues uh, and everything on that line from hip hop to jazz I like mm-hmm. like there's a line from country to jazz oh and, yeah if you listen and, if you listen to um old like those old plantation songs like I was saying yeah um, like those old YouTube recordings or not YouTube but those old recordings <laughs> on YouTube um it sounds like fucking country like just regular yeah. old country yeah and it's crazy like that you know, the fucking Hank Williams and shit, they didn't really change much about what they were doing from 
what these former slaves and slaves were doing. Right. Yeah, a lot of a lot of folk sounds like country too. A lot of yeah, it's 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 weird how how natural that sound can come about. But I was ask I needed to ask you what is who is your black Jesus? I'm curious. I don't know. I was trying to think about that and I was just See, I, like picking one is hard. Like Yeah, I know. Who um okay, so you're 13-year-old David. When did you start playing guitar? They they are 13. 13. 12, okay. 13. So who if you can remember who was like what made you want to start playing? George Harrison seeing George Harrison on the the rooftop performance at Abbey Road. See, just seeing how cool that guy looked, I was like, I gotta do that. And I have a black Telecaster right now, just like the one that he had on that rooftop. Um, but that led to Jimi Hendrix, who I think completely transcends race altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, probably Jimmy's my black Jesus. I kind of wish there was a black guy here so I could like, <laughs> ask him if he's uncomfortable with what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm sure they are. Black people, I apologize. <laughs> I, f- I formally apologize. Jimi Hendrix is fucking rad, though, because in the 60s, you have, like, a decade that was dominated by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, which yeah. are all white bands. And then you, you know, way back then, you still have this black guy who's, granted, he's getting fucked over by this energy, industry executive named Ed Chaplin, or Chalpin, or whatever the fuck his name is. Yeah, you're talking about Jimmy? Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, it's just, it's... It's awesome that there was a sort of cultural shift whenever, um, I don't know if it was attributed to um, like social rights movement or not, but it seems like he was he was getting a little bit more traction than his ancestors were. Yeah. It's like we're, we're, we're making ground, but we're still fucking over these black artists. <laughs> he, he Well, he came in and he just like, he started, he had a completely different sound, like that devil, the E7 sharp nine or whatever the chord it is that he plays all the time Mm -hmm. that just rocked the fucking world and now his music was kind of i don't know how it was back then because there's i don't know people get weird after somebody that good dies people tend to idolize him but i Mm -hmm. I would be curious to know like if you go back in a time machine did people look at jimmy back then like people look looked at drake in 2014 like, was it that kind of relationship that they had with, with him, or do we only have that, like, godlike separation because he's dead? That's a good point. I've always been curious about that. But back to Jimi Hendrix's manager, mm-hmm. there was this, I think it was a Rolling Stone article I was reading, and it said that Jimmy had gotten kidnapped at one point, and the whole kidnapping was a ploy from Jimi Hendrix's manager because the manager felt like Jimi Hendrix was going to leave him at some point. And he was like, I got to do something to make Jimi Hendrix not leave me. And he got a, a mob guy to kidnap Jimi Hendrix. What? And the manager saved Jimi Hendrix from the mob guy and made him look like a savior to Jimi Hendrix. So Jimi Hendrix, like, just in this whole time, Jimi Hendrix was probably just fried off acid or whatever. Yeah. Like, his brain was just gone by that point, I'm sure. And he just runs up and hugs his leg and says, thank you, you can be my manager forever. But I had no idea about that, and that also may, may be completely fake news. So look it up, yeah. people. That, that's <laughs> fucking crazy, though, if that's true. I wouldn't put it past him. Because what yeah. there was one thing he did. Um, he basically, he was tricked. Well, you could say tricked. He probably didn't read the contract. 
But I'm yeah. I'm also sure that this this uh, Ed Chap Chalpin fella had some malicious intent. But he was basically uh, made to sign this contract that committed him to three years of playing in this band, and yeah. uh, he only received one percent of the royalties. So, oh. um, I mean, he went he went to Europe, toured around for a while. He comes back to America, and then again, this fucking this. Ed Chalpin fucker pops up again, starts making claims, you know, from 65 to 68, saying that he owns all of the rights to that music, basically. And uh -huh. even even after he died in 1970, like, people were fighting over his rights for decades, and then finally his family won it in 2003, but as you've told me before, you you have a problem with how they handle his estate. Yeah, I, I don't, I've, I've heard really bad things about, um, I think it's his sister that runs it. Mm -hmm. And or his half sister or something I don't know, but she she's really stingy about uh, who. Uh, well, I guess I guess she should be, but she was like, I think it was during a crossroads thing where they were playing a Jimi Hendrix song and she just did not want them to play it at all. And I don't know, I, I don't remember exactly why I didn't like her, but I'll, next time I'll I'll be more informed on that and I'll roast her. <laughs> it it does seem a little bit money grabby. But yeah. I, I would say that I would prefer it going to his, you know, actual blood relatives than this fucking white producer who just, right. you know, kind of fucking tricked him into making a shit ton of money for him. Yeah. But you, you raised a good point a minute ago talking about how when people die, they're sort of, uh, ascend, they sort of ascend to this godhood type thing. Yeah. And that, I'm, I'm wondering why that is. I don't know. I think it's just it's supply and demand. Once once the supply is gone, the demand goes up, and this our supply of Hendrix went down, and our demand for him went crazy high, and suddenly every motherfucker with hair past their ear and a white Stratocaster has a Jimi Hendrix shirt. I don't know. It's I feel like it, it really it breaks down to supply and demand. Like if Kendrick were to die tomorrow, oh yeah, it would be knock on fucking wood. By the way, pandemonium for the next decade. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, like, Tupac and Biggie, they were two big artists who, well, not so much Biggie, but Tupac sort of spoke, like, a, a real message, like, the yeah. birth of quote-unquote wokeness, if you will. Right. Yeah. And I just find it weird that they both did not survive that decade. Yeah, I know. It's I like know. the the bigger voice you get, it's like that, it's still those fucking plantation owners trying to ban the African drum. It's the same fucking thing over and over yeah it's it's weird because like when when things like hip-hop something that is, is super powerful and they can give people a voice that maybe would not have had a voice prior to that the people at the top get so weird get so sweaty about it i was um this kind of relates to it but i was listening to something about um um second amendment stuff i think it was a radio lab and they were talking about uh how the the fight for the second amendment none of that was was hardly even in the discussion like second amendment was not stressed that much in law school and it wasn't talked about that much until the black panthers came around and started watching cops as they were stopping people in oakland and then ronald reagan was like we can't have guns on the streets like ronald reagan was was for gun control at that point which is really? crazy to think about yeah it's crazy yeah. because he was a hardline republican yeah 
I don't know. Yeah, when 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 something gives people a voice who wouldn't have had a voice prior to that, you know, people will yeah. start pushing pushing buttons. Oh yeah, they try to suppress it. That's for sure. And Fight the power. The the era of hip hop. That's a it's another good example of people just not giving credit where credit is due. Quite frankly, yeah. I mean, it's it's demonized as like this hooliganism form of you know people don't even really call it art i was talking to this guy at the music store the other day and he was telling me how um people who sample or people who make you know music that isn't really produced on actual instruments he was saying that it's uh it sort of lacks value and that he i mean he doesn't listen to it that's not his words but i'm basically paraphrasing and i posited the question to him like if you okay do you do you view a chef any less if he makes his mashed potatoes out of store-bought potatoes or out of homegrown potatoes? Mm. It's a fucking weird analogy, but it I feel like it makes sense. Or at least it did to me, to my fucking stoned ass when I was talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, the, the sampling, the music that uses sampling is analogous to store-bought mm-hmm. packaged potatoes? But because you're, you're using someone who has a lot more resources say a farmer who can grow tons of potatoes the equivalent of that would be recording artists who get paid lots of money to go record stuff i don't know i mean i'm not saying that sampling should be like completely legal i think people i believe in intellectual property but yeah it's like okay i'm not trying to put everybody into a box here but generally africans america african americans are (laughs) in a lower income group yeah. Okay, so if you don't have the funds to get a fucking guitar for Christmas, all your family has is a record player. Yeah. You can kind of see how that, you know, creative process would just sort of carve its way into the woodwork. Right. Based Man, on a record player is an instrument, it's just an interactive instrument. Mhm. And it's weird that we we think like um if you don't play what I recognize as an instrument, you're not a musician or an artist and you don't have anything to contribute. Right, it's weird. It's weird how that purist kind of mindset bleeds through, and with that, yeah, man, I, I don't know, but uh, so yeah, I was watching this uh, Miles Davis documentary the other night. That was kind of what gave me the idea to do this episode, and uh, he was talking about how this is completely unrelated to what we were just talking about, but um, he was talking about how they recorded all of kind of blue that was all first take one take deals like wow. yeah so if you haven't heard kind of blue go listen to that fucking album and i want you to just imagine being in a room with people who just spontaneously create this fucking ethereal fucking weird ass shit i don't know that's like precise. the quintessential jazz album yeah and it's precise stuff too it's like they're a well-oiled machine and it's crazy i didn't know that that was all first take stuff i didn't either until i watched that documentary i think it's also called kind of blue if you want to watch it i think it's in like three parts yeah or something i might do that tonight it's that it's crazy it, because that it puts you when you can when you know that an album was recorded live in a room not like a live recording in front of a crowd but like right. live in the studio it's you can inject yourself into that room because they weren't you know it wasn't people sending tracks to each other over the internet and saying hey can you finish this track can you send it back to me Mm -hmm. it was four or five people in a room 
doing it and especially with that high intensity of music is nuts it's yeah. crazy i can't imagine what that felt like to be able to just kind of vomit out culture i don't know how to say it but like i don't yeah. know i can't imagine because i mean there were heavy hitters in his fucking band like philly joe jones and uh bill evans was playing with him john coltrane all yeah. heavily, heavily influential people. Obviously, Bill Evans is white, so fuck him. He doesn't get to be in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I really have, have. I was listening to some of his stuff. It was uh, it was a recording of Danny Boy, which is some old Irish song. Yeah, you showed know. you showed me that. I really like that one. For whatever reason, it's so simple and it uses pentatonic stuff, pentatonic melody stuff, and it it was just it hit me in such a way that I was like, oh my god, I just want to play piano for the rest of my life. Yeah, his his fucking. <laughs> simplicity is like i don't know it's it's simple but not it's like he uses strange voicings and weird extended chords yeah i don't know he's a fucking crazy guy but yeah this is about black people so fuck him (laughs) (laughs) maybe in march bill evans hell yeah well we've been going for almost 42 minutes wow so um i guess we can pretty much wrap it unless you have anything else to add anything you need to plug or promote um any new shows coming up uh we have a show in april that's a long way from now uh but i'll have more well, i'll have you back on before then so okay hell yeah yeah well i just want to thank you for your time dave i appreciate you Listen coming up. on and listening to me babble and babbling back at me thank you for having me on i've never stared at my wall as long as i've been staring at it <laughs> during the podcast i know how you feel But yeah, folks, that's it for this week. I will catch you on the next one. And as always, thank you for listening. Love you guys. Goodbye, my baby boys. Goodbye, my fat baby boys. I'm just the way it was designed to be.